To give us a little reminder here of what we've seen throughout the book of Acts, we began with watching Jesus Christ ascend to heaven. We saw the day of Pentecost where the power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, the early explosion of evangelism where thousands upon thousands of Christians are meeting in the temple every day, the miracles that the Lord did through that early church that, of course, led to the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution that came after that when especially the Hellenistic Christians were scattered. And then we saw the expansion of salvation to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles. You remember what a big deal that was? Of course, we saw the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, and he became, as we know him, Paul the Apostle, and his three different missionary journeys, first with Barnabas, and then with Silas, and Luke, and Aristarchus, and all those other great men. And it led to his arrest in Jerusalem, his very long imprisonment in Caesarea. And most recently, we saw Paul appealed to Caesar because he knew he wasn't getting a fair shake in Caesarea. And we saw the perilous journey that ended in his shipwreck on the island of Malta, where God, again, even though they were shipwrecked on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, God uses Paul to do some miracles and start a new church. So the Lord, uh, the Lord knew what was going on even when they didn't. And today we're going to see Paul and his companions will arrive in Rome, and that's where we're going to have to leave him, because that's where the book of Acts ends. Everything else we know about the early church about the stories of the apostles or about Paul or the martyrs or anything like that, that comes from church history or it's derived from the epistles. And there's a lot of great church history that I'd, I'd love to take some time in the future to dive into because it's our history, is it not? There's a lot of bad stuff in church history that we kind of cringe at, but there's also a lot of good stuff worth us learning about. So maybe we'll get into that another time. But in this passage, as I've been saying towards the end of Acts, I've been wanting to summarize major themes that we've seen in this really long book. And we talked about prophecy and healing in the church. We talked about evangelism, the gospel itself. But today we're going to look at two more, two more big themes that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. The first of which is the confirmation of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, which of course peaked, you could say, when Jesus was crucified, but was further confirmed through their actions in the book of Acts. And number two, the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth has been a big theme of the book of Acts. We've seen it spread from Jerusalem and the Judea and Samaria, as it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The disciples asked Jesus a political question. <laughs> Not much has changed. But he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Up till this point in the Bible, it's been all about Israel. There have been some little adventures in other places, but it's been about Israel. But the Lord has been saying all along that my glory and my plan is too great for just the nation of Israel. I'm going to overflow the boundaries of the promised land and reach the whole world and this is what we're seeing in the book of Acts, and here you and I are at the ends of the earth having church on a Sunday morning. How cool is that? But you read this, and you, you see Paul comes to Rome, and you're like, well, wait a minute, isn't there more to come? Yes, there absolutely was, and there's still so much to be done today, isn't there? We're not done. We've still got that mission to fulfill. There's still so many who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you remember at the very, very beginning, Luke was writing to a man named Theophilus. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts to Theophilus. 
And he told us at the beginning of the book of Acts that the book of Luke was all about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And Acts, you could say, is the continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach through his church. And Acts took the story up until what I believe was the present day in their case. And Jesus continues to do and to teach through his church to this day, doesn't he? And the name Theophilus means lover of God. So it is up to every one of us who is a lover of God to continue that work and to continue that mission. So let's read. Starting at verse 11, we'll go to the end of the book, verse 31 today. But let's read first down to verse 16. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. You could underline that. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, this is the final travel narrative of the book of Acts. There's been a lot of these because Paul's been on these journeys around the Mediterranean coast. And this is also the end of the final we passage. And you'll remember we, of course, includes Luke because Luke was the one who wrote this. But we also know from when Paul set sail from Caesarea, Aristarchus is with them. Aristarchus was one of the two that had been dragged into the auditorium in Ephesus when they were chanting about Diana, their goddess, and he made it out of there, and now he's here with Paul and Luke. And he says they stayed three months in Malta, which is the island on which they ran aground. Malta was south of Sicily, which of course is just the, the tip of Italy, and they had to stay the winter there, which is why they stayed three months. You remember Paul had told them when they were on Crete, he said, we shouldn't leave Fair Havens because winter's coming. I know what's going to happen. This ship is going to get run aground. And that's what happened. So they finally wised up and just stayed in Malta. So it's probably somewhere around February AD 60 is the year we are here. It's been 30 years since Jesus Christ died and rose again. And it says they got on another ship of Alexandria. You'll remember we talked about this. Alexandria was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. It's where all of the grain was shipped out, and they were on an Alexandrian ship before, and now they're going to get on another one. And it says that the twin gods were the figurehead of this ship. So it's just Luke's way of identifying what kind of ship they were on. The twin gods, if you're interested, were Castor and Pollux. They're part of the Gemini constellation, the twins. They were part of the story of Jason and the Argonauts. And it was considered a good luck charm because they sailed with Jason and made it all the way and found the Golden Fleece. And they're good luck, but it's, it's almost kind of ironic because the good luck charm on this ship is not the twin gods, but it's Paul the Apostle, isn't it? Because, <laughs> yeah, this ship's going to be fine. We've got Paul and he needs to get to Rome. So they go to Syracuse. This is about a 60-mile journey. This is the southeastern shore of Sicily. And then they're going to hug the coastline probably very closely after all that <laughs> mess they had. And they're going to go to Regium, which is right on the toe of the boot of Italy. And that's a 75, 74-mile journey there. And the last stop 
at least by ship, is Puteoli. This is in the modern-day Naples area. So I've never been to Naples, Italy. Maybe you have, but that's where it is. That was about a 200-mile journey. Said they had a southern wind, so it allowed them to make good time. And Puteoli was the main port for Alexandrian grain in Italy. So Alexandria is at the north of Egypt. So that ship would have gone up to Puteoli and dropped it off there, and that's where it would have gone up the Tiber River to Rome. Now they stay in Puteoli for seven days. They meet some brothers there. That's Christian brothers, obviously. And you can see a few things there. First of all, Julius the centurion has learned his lesson and is trusting Paul. Yeah, go ahead. Spend a week with your friends. Even though you're technically a prisoner, I'm going to let you have some free time. And also, probably they needed a break at this point because they've been at sea for a very long time. And it's going to be a five-ish day walk to Rome. And it says that as they're walking to Rome... The Roman Christians find out that Paul is coming, and they come out, he says, as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns, which were little towns along the Appian Way to Rome. The Forum of Appius was 43 miles south of Rome, and Three Taverns was 21 miles south of Rome. So I wonder what Julius and these other Romans are thinking here. They've got a train of prisoners, and everywhere they go, the crowd is getting larger and larger, and people are coming out of Rome to help escort him to his his appeal before Caesar. But they do come to Rome, and it says in verse 30, which we'll get into a minute, that Paul rented his own place. So as we saw in Caesarea, he, he's, he's under trial. He's not convicted yet, so he's not put into the dungeon or anything like that. He's renting his own house, although he is under guard. Typically, a Roman soldier would be chained to the prisoner, and that would be a six-hour shift. They would rotate. That's how that would work. So Paul's got... He's got a guard, but other than that, he's able to stay in his house and do pretty much as he likes. But he's in Rome. He made it to Rome, the capital of the world at this time. And I, I hardly need to explain to you how grand this is. We still to this day look at Rome as a symbol of culture and as a symbol of commerce and, of course, in other ways, a symbol of idolatry and of depravity too. But Paul's there. He's gone from Jerusalem to Rome. The gospel has made it to Rome. Of course, there was a church there already, but through Paul, it's come to Rome. We saw back in chapter 19, verse 21, towards the end of his third journey, Paul said, I must also see Rome. And then in chapter 23, verse 11, after Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, Jesus told him, you must also testify in Rome. And in 27, 24, when they were on the ship, God had told Paul, you must stand before Caesar. So Paul had been told, you're going to get here. But it was not exactly a straight road, was it? It wasn't exactly an easy path. It was long. He was two years under arrest in Caesarea. It was months and months at sea. And then he finally gets there after being shipwrecked and having to float to the shore after the ship got broken up on the reef. God keeps his promises, doesn't he? I'm not going to spend a whole lot more time on that. But when the Lord tells you, let's go to the other side of the lake, you're going to the other side of the lake. Well, there's a storm coming up, but God said we're going to the other side, right? So Paul's in Rome. Let's start at verse 17 and go down to verse 22 now. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. 
when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Okay, so the first thing Paul does is what Paul always did when he came to a new city. He spoke to the Jews first. He went to the Jews first. He would go to the synagogue, or in this case, he had to call them to him because he wasn't allowed to leave. And he begins by explaining what's going on. He says, I've been sent from Jerusalem, but not because I committed any crime and not because I violated the law. So there's an important distinction there. I didn't break Roman law. I didn't break Moses' law. Either one. They're both important to these Jews. But he, he says, I was arrested because they were trying to riot and rip me to pieces. And the Romans kept on wanting to set me free. But they couldn't because you remember those conspiracies that were trying to kill Paul the second he got free. So... I appealed to Caesar because I wasn't going to get a fair trial. And he says, it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. We've seen this several times that Paul has repeatedly made this case. He's like, I have, I'm not opposed to Israel. I'm not opposed to the law. I believe in the fulfillment of all these things. So he affirms his loyalty to the Jews. He has, as he says, no charge to bring against my nation. He's like, they're going to drag me before Caesar. He says, I, I don't intend to get up there and badmouth the Jews and badmouth Israel and maybe bring reprisals against my nation. That word is ethne. That's my nation. And because he's there of the hope, because of the hope of Israel. Now the Jews say, well, we've never even heard about you, which is kind of nice because everywhere else Paul went, they had heard about him and they didn't want him there. But they say, we want to learn more about this sect. That word sect in Greek is hieresis. That's where we get our word for heresy from. So, so you're part of this weird little culty kind of thing, and we don't really know what's going on, but we haven't heard good things about it. So they say, all right, well, how about you just take some time and explain it to us? Because the Jews in Rome, if you remember, we've talked about this before, had had trouble because of the church. In Acts 18, verse 2, we read about Priscilla and Aquila, who were Jews from Rome, but they had been expelled from the city because Claudius, the emperor, had kicked all the Jews out. And we know from history, there's a document that said, Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome in this year because of a dispute over a man named Crestus. Now, Crestus is probably, almost certainly, a a corruption of the name Christos, which means Christ. So you can see that the, even the Romans didn't really understand. Like, they're fighting about some dude named Crestus or something? I don't know. You just, they, they were fighting and arguing, so we kicked them all out of Rome. So apparently when the gospel first came, it was such a hot dispute between the Jews who were believers and the Jews who were not that Caesar said, I, I don't know what y'all are fighting about, but you got to leave. And you can come back when this is all over. So th there were about 20,000 to 50,000 Jews living in Rome at this time. They were a decided minority. It wasn't like Jerusalem where you needed to make nice with the Jews. The emperor could just kick them out if he didn't want them. So this is the background here. 
They've had some trouble because of this church. They still don't get it. You read the book of Romans. Paul works to resolve some of the conflict between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians because while the Jews were gone, the Gentiles had been able to stay and the church had become very Gentilic. Then the Jews are allowed to come back and they wanted to take that prominence back that they assumed Jews ought to have. And the Gentiles are like, oh, no, I don't think so. So that's part of the reason Paul wrote Romans. So all this in the background, they're like, oh, we'd really like you to explain to us what all this is about. So he sets up a meeting. This is what's called an open door. <laughs> when somebody asks you a question like, so what kind of church do you go to? That's called an open door. What is it exactly Christians believe about that thing? That's called an open door. Don't try to be cute. Answer the question. A lot of times we think, oh, I don't want to blow this open door, uh, so I'm going I'm to soft pedal it and make nice. No, the door's open. Walk through the door. Amen. If they're going to get mad about you telling what we actually believe, well, then you can't help that, can you? Whenever people say, well, what kind of church is it that you came down to plant? I said, we believe in the Word of God, the Bible. God's inspired Word, it tells us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. Boom, real quick. He will go, oh, okay. Usually I'm getting my hair cut, but they can't go anywhere when I'm getting my hair cut. So. And then you can say, what about you? Do you believe that? Oh, I mean, I, I go to church. Okay, but have you been born again? Because you know it says in John 3, you must be born again. So when you get an open door, walk through the door. Don't be like, well, you know, we just believe that, that Jesus has a, is the best way to live life. And we'd love to have you come by. We have coffee, you know, regular and decaf. You can come and check it out. And when the door's open, walk through the door. Paul loved to do that. So let's see, verse 23 through 28, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time here. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. Once again, what is this Roman soldier thinking? <laughs> like, what is, who is this guy? From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. This is Paul the Apostle. This is how he preached. Here's his closer. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Paul was more interested in getting the truth out there than he was making nice with his audience, wasn't he? But they're listening. They listened all day. And he takes the whole day explaining the gospel. And it gives us two important components here. Explaining about the kingdom of God and also Jesus. Those are tied together. They're related, but they're, they're distinct. And we're going to discuss what he means by that. And he also says that he came from the law of Moses and from the prophets. It's, I'm giving a lot of small points here because I want to get to the big one. But I do want to note the importance of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Whenever we say things like, oh, that's Old Testament, D don't do that. Because the New Testament fully affirms the Old Testament. Now, we want to understand it in the full, completed revelation of the New Testament, 
But we need to make sure that we don't say flippant things and ignore what the law and the prophets had to say. When Paul writes to Timothy and he says, from your youth you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. Timothy hadn't known the New Testament since he was a youth because it hadn't been written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament there. Now you can apply it to the New, but it's just important for us to know that. This is why we teach through the New and the Old Testament. We're going through Acts for a little while longer on Sundays. On Wednesdays we're going through Genesis. Because as Peter said in 1 Peter 1.12, it was all written to serve you. Pretty cool, isn't it? So just a little point that you'll, you'll hear that a lot. Well, that's Old Testament. And <laughs> it's Old Testament, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. But Paul used the law and the prophets, speaking to a Jewish audience, great idea, to preach about first the kingdom of God. Now this is familiar to us because when John the Baptist came out of the wilderness, he began to preach at the Jordan. What did he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Jesus was baptized and came out from the wilderness and began to preach, what was he saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's Paul at the end of the book of Acts talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And as you saw at the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 6, what did the apostles ask Jesus? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And that's when Jesus told them, don't worry about that. You just go preach the gospel. But what does this mean? The kingdom, with a capital K here, this is a phrase we use in Christianity a lot. And it gets thrown around kind of freely, which is okay to an extent. But it's important that we know doctrinally what the Bible teaches about the kingdom of God. This is, especially in this context, but everywhere, a reference to what was promised to David, to Abraham, and to Moses. The promise of Israel's restored eternal kingdom. Remember, God told Abraham, we've been discussing that lately in Genesis. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land. You're going to have a multitude of nations as your children. And through you, all the world will be blessed. The Lord told Moses that the prophet is going to be raised up like you. And he's going to lead the people forward. And you're going to go into my promised land. David was told, you will have a son who will sit on the throne forever. And he will rule and reign forever, and my hand will be upon him. There's other places in the Old Testament that describe it too, but that's what we're talking about. All those promises balled up together, the kingdom. They're looking for the kingdom. The best description I could give you here is from Zechariah chapter 12. You can turn there if you like. We're going to read a couple passages from it today. But Zechariah 12, verses 6 through 9. When they were wondering about the kingdom, this is what they were wondering about. The Lord says in this passage, On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord. The great messianic prophecy there that we don't have time to get into. Going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations, the goyim, the ethne, the Gentiles that come against Jerusalem. That's the kingdom. Now that'll preach. That'll get people fired up. 
That someday the Lord says, I'm going to empower all of you to destroy all these nations. I'm going to give you all the land from, as we're going to read uh, later on in Genesis, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates. It's all going to be yours and you're going to rule and Jerusalem's going to be exalted high. That's the kingdom. Now, Israel never fully experienced the promises given to Abraham or to Moses or to David, largely because of their own sin, but the fact remains. They never fully experienced them. And God cannot lie. God said, I'm going to have a son that will sit on the throne forever. You can't just say, well, we blew it, so I guess we don't get that anymore. No, that's not how it works. No, they, they never finished driving out the inhabitants of the land like God told them, so they didn't get to occupy all of it. You don't get to then say, well, I guess God was just exaggerating. No, God cannot lie. The Lord says, if you could break my covenant with the sun and the moon and the stars, you could break my covenant with Israel. We need to know this because there are folks that want to say God finished his covenant with Israel and started a new one, abandoning the old one with us. Well, if God could break that covenant, why do you think he's going to keep this one forever? It's important. God is faithful and God is honest. But the question becomes, okay, you made these promises. We never saw them. The prophets, even after the exile, like Zechariah, were reaffirming those promises. So when? Acts 1.6. When? Is now? Is now the time we get the kingdom back? This was the question. Well, here comes Paul, showing up in Rome, preaching the kingdom. But most importantly, he's not just talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the king of the kingdom who is Jesus Christ. And he demonstrates through the law and prophets. We've done this many, many times. But Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. Now, you have the promise of the kingdom, but you also, in this Old Testament, you have a personal figure who spearheads those promises, who holds all of those promises in his own hands. He goes by many names, the, the servant of the Lord, or the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed or promised one. We see a lot of names of him, but he's promised in the Old Testament. The seed of Abraham, right? In your singular seed. The prophet like Moses, the son of David. If there's a man coming who's not only going to represent these promises, he himself will fulfill these promises. So they were looking for a kingdom. They also were looking for a king. Paul shows up talking about the kingdom and the king. That the Messiah came and his name was Jesus of Nazareth. This is exciting news. But you know the story. Paul had to explain to these people, Messiah came and we killed him. We nailed him to a cross. He came to bring us the kingdom. He rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey, just like Zechariah had prophesied. They were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by the end of the week, what were they shouting? Crucify him. This is bad news. Israel rejected the Messiah. John 19, 15, when Pilate shows them Jesus beaten and bloody and the crown of thorns, and they see him and they say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's rejection of the Messiah. Now, we know the good news as well. We sang it this morning. Jesus rose from the dead. But the tragedy that Paul had to communicate to these Roman Jews, is that Israel missed it. Everything they had been waiting for and looking forward to and singing about and trying to overthrow their oppressors for, they missed it. Not only did they miss it, they rejected it. So 
We've seen this constantly throughout the book of Acts, especially at the beginning when Peter gives that first message. He says, you crucified the king of glory. And when he stood before the Sanhedrin, he said, it was your hands that put the righteous one of God to death. And they would always call for repentance then. They'd say, but repent. This was all part of God's sovereign plan to deliver us from our sins. So repent that the times of refreshing may come. Remember that? Peter talked about that. Until then... The kingdom is kept from Israel. But as we see here, as we've seen repeatedly in this book, and it's been a constant theme throughout the book of Acts, that when Israel hears the gospel, some of them accept it, most of them don't. Almost all of the persecution, in fact, I think you could say all the persecution in the book of Acts, comes from Jews. Even the Gentile persecution in many cases was at the instigation of the Jews. God's chosen people, Israel. It was the Israelites that wanted their Messiah and his people silenced. Same thing here. Some of them believe, most of them don't. And so Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. When God sent out Isaiah to go and speak to the people. This, this is, by the way, the message that Isaiah got in that famous passage. You know, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the coal cleanses his lips, and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And the Lord says, okay, I'm going to send you. And here's what I want you to say. It's these verses here. Go and tell these people they're stubborn, and their hearts are hard. And I'm going to tell you something, Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. Your job is to get out there and proclaim repentance as much as possible so that I will be justified in my judgment of these people. So here am I, send me. That's not a, not a nice task. We, we know from the word that Isaiah was sawn in half by these people. They did not listen to him. And the, Paul sees these Jews and he says, you're just like your fathers. You're just like the Jews in Isaiah's day. It's talking about you too. Very significant that he says your fathers, by the way. Paul was a Jew too, but it's, it's very similar to what Jesus said in the book of John. He's like, you're like your fathers who persecuted the prophets. And you know what? You're like your father, the devil too. John drew that distinction, John the Baptist, between the sons of Abraham that were physical sons of Abraham and the true spiritual sons of Abraham. <laughs> it's when he said, God could turn that rock into a son of Abraham. So don't think that your birth gives you some sort of spiritual advantage. And he says, your hearts have become dull. That word for dull there is the word in Greek, pakuno. It's where we derive the same word, pachyderm, which refers to an elephant. Pachyderm, derm means skin, like dermatologist. Pachy means thick or fat. Says, your hearts have become so thick that the gospel can't get in. It's so thick and it's so fat and it's so dull. You can't even feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit on your heart. You can't even feel the joy of the, of the Messiah coming. They're so calloused, even here. And it's difficult for us to overstate the seriousness of this, that you have a whole Bible full of prophecies about the coming Messiah, and then the Messiah came and Israel said, no, thank you. It, it, in a sense, although the Lord was sovereign and knew it was coming, but it derailed everything that the Old Testament had been building to. Even Daniel's 70 weeks, 70 weeks are determined for your people. But after week 79, they killed the Messiah. So like, where's week 70? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Now, this has led some people to say, yep, God's done with Israel. He doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. 
And the church has replaced Israel. We're the new Israel. That is absolutely not the case. Read Romans chapter 9. That's where Paul gets one of his famous, has God abandoned his people that he foreknew? And he says, God forbid. Absolutely not. And there's a lot of Gentiles who have grown kind of proud, like, yes, well, we're really the true Israel. And those national Jews, I mean, God's kind of done with them. They missed it. Not what it says. Romans 11.25. If there's one verse you memorize today, memorize this one. Because this is the theme and summary verse of this whole topic. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Lest you be wise in your own sight. That's Paul's way of saying, lest you get big for your britches, Gentiles, and think that it's all about you suddenly. I don't want you to be unaware of this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Romans 11 verse 8 calls that a spirit of stupor, a spirit of unbelief. For how long? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Very similar to what we see in Hosea chapter 3, where Hosea buys his wife Gomer back. But he says, you're going to dwell as mine for many days, but there's not really any kind of serious marriage going on. It's not an abandonment of Israel, but it's a temporary setting aside of Israel. Because God always intended for the Jews to be his vessel to reach the world. The Lord said, you will be my kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? A priest represents God to the people and the people to God. He says, I want you to be the light to the nations. That city set on a hill. God told Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. But Israel never lived up to that. They became insular. They became prejudiced. And they became proud of the Gentiles being separate from them, rather than seeing their calling as reaching out to these Gentiles. So when they rejected their Messiah in their pride, God said, fine, I'll do it without you. I'm still going to reach the Gentiles because I love them too much. I can't abandon them, but I'm not going to use you to do it. The Lord set them aside. He put, as Paul said, a spirit of stupor upon them, a partial hardening. It's a good thing that it's a partial hardening because Jews can still be saved, but on a national level, the Lord's like, I'm not going to give you the spirit of repentance. You want, you want to have a hard heart? Fine. Your heart has been hardened. Very similar to Pharaoh. Isn't that ironic? That Pharaoh hardened his heart repeatedly until finally God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God locked in Pharaoh's decision. Very similar. And now here's Israel hardening their heart repeatedly in the book of Acts against the gospel until it says in Romans 11, God has confirmed that temporarily. It will be done someday. But for right now, this is where we live. Now, how does this relate to the kingdom? Because the kingdom is God's promises to Israel. The kingdom is the son of David sitting on the throne. The kingdom is Jerusalem ruling over the world. It's the boundaries of Israel from the river to the river. So if Israel has been given a spirit of stupor and a partial hardening, what's the deal with the kingdom? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's going on? The kingdom has gone to the Gentiles? Well, not exactly. Let's read this. John 18, 36. This is the appropriate context for this verse. Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate says, they say you're a king. What's the deal? Well, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Now, this can be confusing 
if you don't understand that partial hardening against Israel. So wait a minute. All through the Old Testament, we're talking about a real kingdom of this world. And then we stand in John 18. It says, my kingdom is not of this world. What's the deal? When Israel rejected their kingdom, they rejected the fullness of God's promise. But for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, there is access through the Holy Spirit to what Romans 8.23 calls the first fruits of the kingdom. The first fruits of the kingdom. You know what the first fruits are. It's the first round of fruit that comes off the trees, the first wave of the harvest. That's what we have access to. It's what Blessed Assurance calls a foretaste of glory divine. When you become a Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And He not only brings forgiveness of sins to you, He begins to transform your character. He empowers your prayers. He gives you joy. He gives you peace. He takes your life and places your life under the authority of Christ Jesus. Okay? So, in that sense, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are under the kingdom of God because you are living as if Jesus was your king. Does that make sense to you? That those blessings that are going to come in the kingdom later have been given partially to you now. Romans 8.23 calls it the first fruits. We're still waiting for the fullness to come later, but in the meantime, the Lord says, I'm going to give you as much as I can now. This is important for us to understand because a misunderstanding of what the kingdom is can lead to a ton of false teachings. The worst one is when you say, no, no, we have to establish the kingdom. It's up to us. So what we're going to do, we're going to march around the world. We're going to take over cultures. We're going to take over societies and establishments. And we're going to transform them into Christian societies and establishments. And then when we've conquered the world with the gospel, Jesus will come back. That's dangerous. Because now all of a sudden you can justify all kinds of things in the name of your Christian jihad, can't you? Or you can say, well, listen, the kingdom has come now. So you need to start bossing God around to send you some kingdom stuff now. Come on, God, where, where's, the, where's the perfect health that I was promised? Come on, God, where's the riches that I was promised? Come on, Lord, I want, I want this snake and this lamb to be friends, like it says in, in the Old Testament. You've got to understand this. There is a physical full kingdom coming someday, but Israel rejected that. So God said, okay, that's on pause. I'm going to reach the Gentiles like I promised, and I'm going to give them all the spiritual benefits of the kingdom now. God had to deal with the spiritual problem of sin before he could establish the physical kingdom. Because God's a good God. He's like, I'm not going to let you all bring all that garbage into my kingdom. Let's deal with this first. Now, the Lord wanted to do that all at the same time. He wanted to say, let's deal with sin, and then we'll bring about the kingdom. But this was all in God's sovereignty, so it's hard to describe it in that way. But the Lord has done it in stages. Dealt with the spiritual problem, and we're waiting for the physical solution. Which is funny. Israel minimized the spiritual side of the kingdom because all they wanted was the physical kingdom. We want to be rulers over the world. But now today, we emphasize the spiritual side of the kingdom and downplay the coming physical kingdom. People say things like, well, if you're just waiting for the kingdom to come someday, you're no use to this world. Excuse me? That makes me a better person. That makes me a better citizen of the world because I know that this ain't the end. So I don't waste my time trying to solve a bunch of things, and I spend my time saving people whose souls are going to live forever. But we do believe in a physical kingdom coming. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, and then I'm going to read chapter 20, verse 6. 
It's talking about when Jesus returns. When he returns to that battle that we described in Zechariah chapter 12. It says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So, Revelation 19, at the end of those seven years, Daniel's 70th week, Messiah will return and set up a kingdom with iron righteousness. There is going to be no tolerance for sin any longer when Jesus Christ is king. And then in chapter 20, verse 6, it tells us, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So how long is the reign of Jesus Christ? How long is the kingdom? A thousand years. And the Bible says that you and I, as believers, who share in the first resurrection, will rule and reign with him. So chew on that in your devotions this week. Think about that. So what we see is even the New Testament is prophesying a physical restored kingdom to Israel. When the son of David returns to Jerusalem and establishes a kingdom of righteous over all the nations. So what do we do? We go around proclaiming that the kingdom is coming. And in the meantime, we say, so you've got to pledge your fealty and your loyalty to the king of the kingdom through repentance and faith in his name. And the Bible says that this stage we're living in right now will continue, as we read in Romans eleven twenty-five, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until God has saved every Gentile that he has determined to save, this will continue. And then it says the Lord will use the great tribulation, not only to judge the world, but to wake up the nation of Israel. Remember, Jesus promised back in Luke and back in Matthew 23, when they rejected him, he said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He says, I'm not going to rule over you until you acknowledge me as king and mean it. Now the question is, what would it take to get the Jews today to acknowledge Jesus as king? Talk about a hard heart. You know what it would take? Seven years of great tribulation and the grace of God. If we keep reading from that passage in Zechariah we read before, Zechariah 12, 10, and then into the next chapter, verse 1, the Lord said, I will pour out on the house of David, talking about the same day that we read before, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, when they look on him whom they have pierced, now that's an interesting thing because Jesus hadn't been nailed to any cross yet. So if you didn't know about Jesus being nailed to the cross, what does that mean, that one we've pierced? I don't really know what that means, but let's keep reading. We know what it means. They're going to look on Jesus Christ, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So the Lord says, on that day when I come and I empower all of y'all to fight and drive off these oppressors that are coming after you, same story that we read in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns, it says that the Lord is going to pour out a spirit on their heart. They're going to see Jesus and know in that moment, that was our Messiah and we crucified him. And it says they will weep bitterly like you weep for a firstborn child that you lost. But the Lord will cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. The Lord will remove his restraining hand 
as it says in Thessalonians, through, we believe, rapturing his spirit-filled church. And he's going to permit the world to basically go to hell for seven years. He's going to unleash demons that have been bound since the book of Genesis. He's going to turn loose Satan to have his way on the world. And he's going to permit Israel to be ravaged like never before. And in the end, he pours out a spirit of repentance on them. And then the heavens will open and Jesus Christ will ride down with that sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And he will tread the winepress of God Almighty and set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. So today, as we see the Jews and their entrenched blasphemy against Jesus Christ, it's almost as if the Jewish people have redefined their religion to more be against Christ than to be pro-anything else. Have pity on them and have hope for them because God's not done with them yet. God is not done. My God is faithful. My God is willing to allow us to reap the hard consequences of our sins, but the Lord is too full of love to allow his people to get away from him for long. But what we've seen throughout the book of Acts is that God's chosen people, the Jews, blinded by their own hearts, have been overtaken by the harvest of Gentiles. That's why Paul says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and they're going to listen. And you look at the church today. The Gentiles listened. The gospel went around the world, and, and where did it take root? Not in Israel. It took root early on in North Africa. That was the center of Christianity forever. Egypt. <laughs> Egypt was the center of Christianity. Alexandria, Athanasius, and all those guys that came out of there. Then it went up into Europe primarily for a long time, and Rome became the center. Rome became the center of Christianity. And it spread all over the world to now you're seeing revivals in South Korea and Brazil. And here's the United States that there are a lot of people that really wish there were a lot less Christians in this nation because it would make things a lot easier for them. And you look at the Bible and you're like, really, Alabama? Really, Brazil? South Korea, China, this is where the gospel is going to go? The Gentiles have listened to the gospel. All the way down to Australia, haven't they? But we're waiting for the Lord to restore Israel. And this is a question the New Testament wrestles with over and over again. Romans 9 through 11 talks about this a ton. Ephesians and Galatians talks about this a ton. The whole book of Hebrews talks about this a ton. Because it's a big deal when you've been reading since Genesis and all of a sudden the church is full of Gentiles. What happened? Israel rejected their Messiah, so God temporarily blinded Israel. But he's not done with them yet. All I can say in this is I'm really glad that when my ancestors were worshiping Thor and Odin and bowing down to rocks, that the Lord had enough grace to send somebody up there brave enough to share the gospel with a bunch of barbarians. Amen. And here we are today. Well, let's come to the end of this here. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, there it is, the kingdom and the king, with all boldness and without hindrance. Before we move on, I do want to mention something there. You either have a footnote in your Bible or you do not have verse 29, which says, And when he said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. I've talked about this several times. The Western text, the Western family of manuscripts was heavily influencing the book of Acts, and that is not a very well-attested family of documents. So that means the oldest and best manuscripts of Scripture we have do not include verse 29. But I do hope you can see that 
even if you included verse 29 or if you took it out, it does not change the meaning of the passage. And that is the case in every case. So people say, oh, there's all those changes in the new Bibles. It changes doctrine. No, it doesn't. I promise you it doesn't. It's just our way of saying, look, I want to know what it said. I don't want to know what changes they made in 1100 AD. I want to know what it said when it was written. So just making that comment and we'll move on. So Paul's interview with the Jews did not go very well, but we do see that he had at least two years of faithful ministry in Rome. It means he ended up waiting almost five years for his appeal to go through. Two years in Caesarea, plus all that time traveling, plus two years in Rome. But he was able to do this with all boldness and without hindrance. And during this time, Paul would write most of his prison epistles, the first round. That's Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. So, not such a bad deal for me, anyway, that Paul had to stay there. Because I get Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. This is very similar to when Martin Luther, after he gave his famous declaration, was forced to hide in Wartburg Castle for nearly a year. Do you know this story? Martin Luther had to hide in that castle because the Pope was out to get him. But during that year, he translated the New Testament from Latin into German and was able to give a Bible to the people. So you can think, what a waste of time. Not really. The Lord had work for Paul to do. And we can pick up some details as you read those epistles, especially the ends of these epistles when Paul kind of handles who's going where and who's got to bring what. Philippians describes that the church in Philippi were the main financial supporters of Paul during this time. So that's Lydia and the oracle that had been saved, and that's the jailer, remember, that had gotten saved in his family. And if you read these letters, those, that first round, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, you get frequent references to the fact that Paul's going to be released. He has a lot of faith. I'm going to be sent out. I'm going to come to you soon. And tradition in the church, through men like Eusebius and Clement, they tell us that Paul was released during his first imprisonment. When he went before Nero, Nero let him go. And that he went to Spain after that, and after this first imprisonment was when he would have written 1 Timothy, when he would have written Titus. And tradition also tells us that when Nero began his horrific persecution of the Christians, which had not happened in this passage, that Paul was arrested again. This time he was put into that horrible dungeon that we think about so much. And that's when he wrote his final epistle, which of course was 2 Timothy. And we know that Paul was beheaded in Rome in 64-65 AD. So from the time you're reading this passage here, within five years, Paul would be dead at the hands of Caesar Nero. And we come to the end of Acts, and you're like, wait a minute, that's it? That's it? He was in his own house? What happened? What happened when he went before Nero? Well, what happened to Peter? What, what about Philip and his four daughters? What happened to them? What about the Ethiopian eunuch who went back to his family in, in Ethiopia? What, did they ever become Christians? What happened? Because we know this was not the end of the story of the church. The gospel came to Rome, but, I mean, what about London or Beijing or Birmingham? Because Jesus had said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We saw that. In Judea, we saw that. Samaria, we saw that. To the ends of the earth. Okay, he went to Rome, but, I mean, there's people living in Norway. <laughs> there's people living down at, at the tip of Africa. So, what, what's happening? Well, the book of Acts ended on a cliffhanger because the story wasn't over. We're still on that same mission. I believe what happened is Luke was writing Luke and Acts while Paul was in prison. And this was as far as they'd gotten. <laughs> he had to end it there because nothing else had happened yet. 
And that kind of depends on how you date the Gospels, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Until the Lord's kingdom comes, you have a mandate to bring the kingdom to individual lives by proclaiming repentance for the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ Jesus. There are still nations to this day that have not heard the gospel. Never heard it. No, no history, nothing. And every succeeding generation needs to hear the good news for the first time, don't they? If we don't prioritize that, you lose nations and you have to re-evangelize them. You get tragedies like the fact that Scotland has now been classified by admissions organizations as an unreached nation. Scotland. That's what happens. There are generations today in this country, in this state, in this city, that need to hear the good news. And we're the ones with the batons in our hands. Now, there are two options. Either we're going to run until Jesus comes back, and we're that anchor leg, and we've got to be the, the ones that fall across that finish line exhausted because we gave everything we had, or we're going to come to the end of our lives, take that baton, and hand it to the next generation and say, now you keep going in the tradition of Paul and Peter and all the other faithful men and women. The gospel's got to go out. This is the book of Acts. The story of how Jesus Christ's church turned the world upside down by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest revolution the world has ever known, and it's still happening today. We are still seeing cultures being transformed by the gospel today, which is why it's so hard, because we look at the world around us in our nation, and our nation is, is at least spiritually in a decline and so we think, well, this has got to be the end. But it's like, look at what's happening over in Korea or Brazil or Africa or India. There, it's on a spiritual upswing. So, like, Lord's got to come back now. Well, maybe not because there's this, this things happening over here. But we're here, though. We've got to face this time, this place, and this generation. And I want to read for you a quote that I read, I believe, our first week studying the book of Acts. So you've probably forgotten it, which means it'll be fresh for you. But this is from my, my old friend and, and professor from school, Dave Early. And he said this about the book of Acts. And maybe you felt this way too. Says, I think to myself, when I look at the world, man, could it get any worse? Has it ever been any worse? But then I realize that the book of Acts was written during a time and about a time when the world was worse. Morality was worse. Values were worse, and yet a handful of people turned the world upside down. If they could do it, then by the grace of God, we can do it now. Ain't that the truth? You have been chosen for this generation. God looked at your life and said, I could put them anywhere. I could put them in ancient Israel. I could put them in the Protestant Reformation. I could put them in the early church. I could put them in the Jesus movement. I could put them in China or Brazil or Canada or South Africa. But the Lord said, I'm going to put them in 2020 in Birmingham, Alabama. That's where I need them the most. You serve a sovereign God who chose you for this task so that you could do his work for the salvation of sinners and to the glory of his name. Luke wrote this letter to Theophilus. He says, Jesus got it started. It continued in the book of Acts. And you, Theophilus, you lover of God, are to continue that work today. If we will follow in the example of these faithful men and women that we've read about in this book, then we will see a harvest unlike any other. There is no other solution for the world. 
There's no other plan, right? There's, there's no other political solution, God forbid. There's no social solution. There's no little charity we're going to found that's going to change the world. It's the gospel. That's it. There is no other solution until Jesus Christ returns in power to establish his kingdom. And I pray that we may be found faithful when the Lord returns, running exhausted across that finish line to hear the Lord say, well done.